to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, crisis management, resilience, well-being, COVID-19, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can reach out to LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there, so I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Alternatively, you can find me at alexfullick.com, and we'll see about getting you on the show. Longtime listeners and viewers will know that I love to read. I've always got a couple of books on the go. I have stacks of books throughout my house. It's probably a huge fire hazard, but I love to read for entertainment and knowledge purposes. Not long ago, I was going through LinkedIn, uh, looking at posts from colleagues, and I came across a posting for a new book that I thought would be really interesting. I ordered it right away and contacted the author. The book is called Code Black. Here's a picture here. 50 Lessons in Crisis Management for Effective Leadership. And I'd like to welcome to the show the author of this book, Glenn Schoen. Glenn, welcome to the show. And did I say your last name right? It's Schoon, but that's okay. Schoon, Glenn Schoon, Code Black. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. It's been a delight writing it. I hope you enjoyed writing it. There's some great stuff in here, and I really we're going to talk about some of the uh, chapters in here. Um, now, I know we've exchanged some emails back and forth, uh, but just in case uh, anybody out there isn't uh, aware of who Glenn Schoon is, can you give us a minute or two and uh, talk about yourself and what you do and how you got into what you do? Yeah, I'm an American who uh, grew up in Europe, uh, then moved to the States for studies and work. And from there, uh, about 15 years ago, moved back to Europe and used that as my base of operations. Um, I grew up, so to speak, in the security field. And from there, graduated more and more to uh, the crisis management area, uh, touching as well on, on business continuity. My original expertise was in terrorism. Of course, there a lot of work I was doing as a consultant primarily, but also an analyst. I've been in different companies and different organizations over the years. More and more, I found there was a crisis element to what I was doing, supporting clients who were having acute problems. So more and more, a lot of my work transferred towards crisis management. And of course, we all have specialties. There's a lot of people in the safety world or disaster management. Um, Mine was mostly from a security point of view. uh, But over time, you get pulled into other types of crises as well. And One of the things I noticed over time is how management teams of different organizations, whether it's a company or a university or a government, uh, often uh, have trouble really connecting with uh, the issues and the problem sets when it comes to areas such as business continuity and crisis management, that there's a bit of a gap between general management and the experts. 
And what I've tried to do in this book is sort of write up my general lessons as well as particularly those areas where I felt general management really was falling short on understanding our field of work. So it's written more for them than for fellow professionals. Well, it definitely comes across, and I know we're going to touch on a couple. Uh, I mentioned a few just before we started recording that really caught my attention that I haven't seen anybody else write about. So I'm looking forward to uh, touching on those uh, uh, areas. My first question, though, is why code black? What does that mean? Is there a meaning behind that? I know code blue in hospitals and things like that. So what's code black? Exactly. So code black, it's, it's one of similar terms to code blue. Um, I just meant it as a general designator. Hey, you know, heads up, we have an emergency coming. And of course, for a lot of organizations that do have some fancy term for it, and even those that don't, it sort of signifies the moment of a switchover to, hey, we've got something coming here. And hopefully we are prepared for it. But in a lot of cases, we're not. So I wanted to sort of give in the title, the big signal of we're talking about something that's immediate, urgent, may threaten your strategic interests, as a lot of these bigger emergencies do. So I wanted something that was a bit gripping and a bit general, as opposed to some long esoteric term about, you know, business continuity and three other terms attached to it. Okay. Well, so let's start jumping into some of the sections of the book here. And the first one I wanted to uh, touch on is the decision-making model. Um, And you talk about there are six steps that you find most useful in defining a crisis. Can you talk about this? Yeah, there's two differences. I mean, one is in defining the crisis, what actually is a crisis, for which I outlined the sort of seven characteristics. When we're talking about the decision-making model, that's slightly different. That's how do we work our way through a crisis. And what I find fascinating with a lot of crisis teams is they have a plan, an emergency plan of some kind ready, and it has a lot of actions in it. But what it doesn't often convey is the process that's behind it and that you need to run through over time. Um, When we talk about an unfolding crisis, very often people will sort of run towards, oh, we have to do A, B, and C, given what the situation is. And what they don't realize is that if you don't structure it as a process over hours, over days, over weeks, that you're going to miss out on particularly treating certain risks. So that's why I put that emphasis on these different steps in order to make sure that you're setting it up as a process that continues over time to try to limit the risks that you're facing. Is that because a lot of times when something does appear on the horizon, either something large or something small, there's a bit of a sense of panic? So we just, uh, leaders sometimes just try to rush to put a Band-Aid on it to fix it right away without really understanding what's going on? I think that's right. I mean, people sort of revert back to form all too often. And, of course, when we look at leaders, it's their, you know, they lead, literally. And they think in all situations, you know, this is my task, this is my role. But for instance, if you look at corporations where, of course, you have a particular product or a service you're selling, and whether it's, you know, something on a global scale, uh, whether it's an airline or whether it's IT services, what they look to do then if there's a problem is to immediately address it often themselves without realizing, wait a minute, there may be angles and risks to this that I hadn't foreseen and that I should get expertise around the table. 
And of course, any big company with a business continuity leader uh, or a team looking at these things or an element of disaster preparedness, it's actually already there, but they sort of tend to skip over it in the first take. What I'm, what I'm trying to emphasize is, you know, you should immediately marshal those uh, services, marshal the capabilities you have in your organization and make sure that the expert input is at the table right away when you start managing a big problem. Well, that, that begs the question then, who should be at the table? Well, that's going to depend a little bit on the type of organizations and the type of risks you're exposed to. But what you do see is in a lot of areas, there are something, I, I call them universal risks. There's more than I mentioned in my book, but there are for companies, I mean, a, a business continuity leader is worth their weight in gold in just outlining what your most likely big risks are. So you want to make sure you have at least those covered. And whether it's a natural disaster or your IT is out or uh, a bank fraud, um, whatever it may be uh, that's on that list, you want to make sure at least you have your big ones mapped out and you're capable of responding to those in the first instance. So um, where, where you're looking at a, an incident, it's something that probably can be managed fairly readily with what you already have on the shelf and how you do things normally. Uh, it's where the incident becomes bigger than just an incident and starts touching on your strategic objectives and your strategic interests. That's where we're moving towards the realm of crisis management. And we want to make sure that that's cut short and caught as early as possible. See, it doesn't take long for me to go off script. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, <clears throat> where things can escalate to crisis management after a time. How, I, I know it's probably going to be different for each organization, but when something occurs, how do you escalate to crisis management? What kind of things end up occurring from you know, a regular phone call to the <clears throat> service desk or the help desk? And people are investigating this incident, but it's growing. And, you know, at one point, do you pull in crisis management? Or, you know, uh, and I, as I say, it's going to be different for each organization. But how do you go from initial phone call seems small to we have a crisis? You know, there, there always seems to be this gray area. Great point. I would say two things. One is that you have a structure that can do that. So if an incident lands somewhere, people have the instruction of informing the right people. And that often starts with business continuity elements <clears throat> because that goes directly to the second element. And the second element is having some concept of the risks facing your organization. Mm -hmm. So do you have some form of enterprise risk management, business continuity planning, business continuity analyses? So you know that when a risk uh, is touched upon, it may grow very rapidly and become a major problem for you. That realization, in fact, is already there because you already mapped it. So it's when you don't have the structure and when you don't have a, a, an overview of those risks and it can escalate, then if, if, if you don't have the structure to guide it or the risks that are identified as, hey, we need to pay attention to this, and whether you say, you know, the business continuity team does it or the crisis management team separately does it. Um, the bigger point is that it gets caught and it gets caught in a structure and with a realization that it may result in a major problem for you. And then, uh, then you pull in whoever your members are of your crisis management team. 
what are your thoughts on, because I had this conversation yesterday, believe it or not, is any situation where you do get, uh, you know, the crisis management team and leadership has to be involved. You bring everyone at the table. Once the crisis is defined, those that don't need to be involved, just kind of step away and become FYI, you know, just keep me in the loop. But, you know, that way, every, instead of bringing people in one, one by one, which method would you suggest is better, even if they're, or are they the same? You know, it depends. I think what works best is having a small core team that comes together and they decide, you know, is this going to be a major risk? What are the specialties we need? Who do we need to inform? So that way you have the highest sort of speed and agility factor to judge uh, essentially for the organization, where are we at? And then to start adding the expertise. What is important, and you indirectly already brought it up, is that you inform all those others. Yes, we're looking at the problem. Yes, we realize there's potential risk. Yes, we're monitoring things. And yes, we're calling in the right people. And that may be you, you know, a day from now or a week from now. Uh, but that way to let everybody uh, create the awareness that there is uh, a, a crew, if you will, I'm sorry, working on it. It also enables the organization, if somebody discovers some aspect of that risk locally, to quickly bring it to the attention of that group. Mm. If you think about what's going on in the Ukraine right now, you know, it might be people who are looking at that country uh, or the operations right there. But then somebody else on the work floor working in maybe Asia knows, hey, wait a minute, we have a ship here with both Ukrainians and Russians on board. That may be a problem. Quick, let me send it upstairs. And that way, you know, the whole of the organization can participate. Okay. Now, you touched on that. You mentioned this at the, uh, the beginning here. Uh, seven characteristics of a crisis. And I, I think you've kind of, we've kind of touched on the top of it, but in your book, you describe seven characteristics. Can you talk about those? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's fascinating to see after all these years, crisis management, business continuity in a way is much more mature than crisis management because we have many more experts there with a shared uh, working language. It's, it's still not continuous around the world, but when we look at things like ISO standards, we look at the Institutes of Higher Learning for Business Continuity Managers, they fairly well have it together in terms of common language, at least for big business, big institutions, big governments. Where it starts getting fuzzy is when those things escalate or they can't be managed with the usual existing business continuity plans anymore. And then on the one hand, we need to sort of have a decision point of, okay, this becomes a crisis and we need to get the top people involved. But there's not the same level of expertise and the same level of maturity in understanding what a crisis is. So everybody uses their own um, definition of it. And that in and of itself is a problem because as different organizations have different uh, definitions for it, not everybody's singing on the same sheet of paper. So it's important that for your organization, at least you define what you consider a crisis and whether you use, as a lot of organizations do, you know, this is an incident, this is a major incident, this is a minor crisis, this is a big crisis, whatever you use as a template, that you have something like that. And what I found is the point where you reach crisis is 
generally all seven of those characteristics to some extent are in play. And, you know, it's touching on strategic interests. It's urgent because it's touching on those strategic interests. Top management is going to be involved and so on and so forth down the list. And I think, therefore, it's handy to at least have that concept so you can quickly check, hey, listen, is this possibly the case? I guess that circles back to your um, escalation that you kind of mentioned before. And the example I said, you know, you call the help desk and how you get to that, that though that would be defined in there somewhere. Like, you know, after four hours, we go up a step. You know, we haven't been able to resolve it. That, that kind of a thing, right? Yeah. Um, and again, make it work for your organization, organize it for your organization. And after that, you can see, okay, what stakeholders do we have? Who do we need to inform? And then just to let them know, look, we're considering this um, a crisis or not, uh, whatever the case may be, or we're watching it and, you know, we're prepared for. Uh, the big problem is when you don't have a mechanism for that, uh, that it may happen too late and you can't marshal all of the resources on time and you're basically behind the power curve when a crisis does break. But it, it is a problem and you, you notice the, the gap around this issue in the literature in our field because we've had a lot of people in the last roughly 20, 30 years, particularly in academics, they come up with a very profound definition for this is a crisis. It's a crisis win A, B, and C. But, you know, it all depends on your organization. So yeah, we're all going to have different uh, tolerance levels and thresholds that we, we don't want to meet you know, in a crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Th that, that brings an interesting point. Uh, uh, and, and I was just thinking, how do you uh, proactively prevent something from becoming a crisis then? If we are going up that escalation ladder, you know, after four hours, we go up a notch. Uh, four hours after that, if we still haven't fixed it, we go up a notch. Uh, and then we pull in the CEO, president, or what, whatever the case may be, you know, the activate crisis management team. A and there are some business objectives. When does that viewpoint of we have a risk that this could be something to it becoming an actual issue, it, it's occurred, but at what point do you kind of start really raising the red flags? You know, we're, we're too close. You know, it's getting much bigger than we can handle. You know, some sort of an identification. It's kind of hard to put into words because it is, you know, it, you're trying to <clears throat> proactively prevent a crisis, but yet you're kind of already in a crisis. Yes. I mean, a lot of this is sort of linguistics, if you will. But I think what's key is that you have uh, an approach akin to enterprise risk management, where you've put in an effort to drain the risk swamp, if you will, beforehand, where you've mapped what are the risks out there, what have we put as measures against those risks, you know, to what extent do we control them, so that you know fairly quickly, hey, wait a minute, what we have in place here is not sufficient for this situation or what the situation may become. And um, I, I, I mentioned a quote in the book, which when I had dinner one evening with the former Secretary of, of Homeland Security, he mentioned, you know, if you've done this run through of your control process and it didn't work, you've got a crisis. And that's true. Now there's a whole lot 
behind that remark because it implies that you have a control process. And in order to do that, you know, you need to have your risks and your control measures mapped. But I think that's true. I mean, the first thing to quickly do with that new situation is to look at, okay, what part of this is new, is novel, may not be covered by the plans we already have. And this is why business continuity is such an incredibly important field of work because they laid a foundation for essentially minimizing the box in which crisis can still occur for you. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can be overwhelmed. There can be some form of force majeure where there's, you can't do anything about it and you have to leave it to the government. But in most cases, uh, most crises, it's still one organization It's their big problem. I mean, we talk about world problems like COVID uh, or uh, Ukraine now, but of course, for a lot of organizations, it's much smaller things that just affect them, whether that's an an ethics problem or a Me Too accusation, or it's a fraud within that organization. I think still the largest percentage of things that companies see as a crisis is something that they primarily, from their own perspective, are experiencing. It, you kind of touched on something there as well, that it sounds when anything happens, there's there has to be a validated link you know, through exercising or testing or whatever between like a help desk, an incident management, business continuity, uh, crisis management. All these groups have to work together and link together. They can't, it, from, from what you were saying, it sounds like they cannot work in silos or they won't be successful. They've got to work together to be able to get there to crisis management, right? You're absolutely right. So this is where things like having an operations center or having somebody on duty to monitor for risk. And certainly it may be in different departments. I mean, one may be business risk, one may be finance, one may be operational risk, but that there are people responsibly on a continuous basis to monitor for things and where this information flows to and that they didn't have a structure to report to and respond to. Otherwise, I guess there's no escalation path and something could be uh, growing in the background that nobody knows about. And then you really are behind the eight ball, you know, trying Absolutely. to catch up, but damage could already be done. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, it, as I stress in in this book, but all our colleagues do, it's about preventive effort. You have to be proactive in this field, do the homework, set up the structure. And 90% of crises, you can basically already um, get some level of a grip on if you've organized things well in advance. And that's where we're still finding so many organizations fall short is not preparing in advance. Mm Mm-hmm. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Glenn Schoon, the author of Code Black, and we will be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. 
Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with the author of Code Black, Glenn Shun, 50 Lessons in Crisis Management for Effective Leadership. Great book. Great first segment there. Lots of information, Glenn. Um, now I want to touch on uh, a couple of other areas. You mentioned the book and the first two uh, that I'm going to bring up, I haven't seen written in other crisis management books. So I really want to make sure we talk about these. And the first one is why should we be wary of default management thinking? I think the reason is we have to be careful about um, leadership of organizations trying to take the helm because they think it's their responsibility when they run into a new or unknown situation, read a crisis. And they tend to think that um, because in, in peacetime they lead the organization, they also have the capability to do that most effectively in wartime. Just like a president of a nation will probably defer to the head of the military to handle a armed conflict. So the general leadership uh, of an organization, uh, if they have expertise within their organization, whether it's the business continuity manager or a designated crisis manager, you should make sure that the people who are prepped for this, trained for this, have thought about this, know how to do this, um, uh, get the room to actually do it and perform. You have essentially the big risk of underperformance by people who are not capable. And I remember at one point, I, I think I brought forward the story of a CEO who I talked to, and he sort of brought that perspective of the business world and a lot of other worlds. Um, they basically learn about 
growth, about positive things, about how do I, you know, grow my organization, make things work well, lay out all the processes. And here you're dealing with something that's not taught in a lot of business schools. Namely, you have an adversary, not a market competitor, but an adversary or adversarial conditions, whether it's a disaster or a group of hackers going after you, who are very much just looking to disrupt you um, and causing you problems. So you need to get expertise at the table on how to handle that. And there's this danger, I think, inherent with these situations. If somebody at the top immediately says, no, I know how to handle it. You know, I can find the exit on this one. The truth is that's not the case in, in a lot of situations. So it's important that leaders recognize that beforehand and then defer to the people who are capable or the team that is capable to support them. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I agree with you there. I, I, I've seen it uh, myself that, just because somebody is the uh, vice president of technology, let's say, uh, as an example, and no, not making fun of anyone in technology, by the way, don't send letters, uh, that uh, if there is some sort of a, an incident, they're by default the crisis management team uh, leader, yet they really aren't the best person to investigate. They don't understand all the mechanics in the background. You know, they're great at budgets and they're great at uh, assignments and, uh, you know, other things that they need to focus on. But under a crisis, they're not the right person to be there, right? Is, is it difficult then, would, in your opinion, from what you've seen, for someone in that position, a vice president of technology, are, are, is it because they feel like they're giving up their authority to somebody else in a crisis when everyone in the organization and internally and externally, I guess, is focused and all of a sudden you don't see the vice president of technology, you see somebody else in charge. Is it, you know, is it that perception that, you know, I've got to be seen as though I know what's going on? I think it's a combination of factors and often, of course, it's also an element of personality, but I think more than that, quite often, you know, crises don't arrive uh, every day. So when we're looking at, big situations, it's often new for them. And if they're not knowledgeable about the capabilities within their firm, about who's there, what they've done, how they've prepared for things, then they often sort of miss the opportunity to engage that at the proper time, right at the beginning. <laughs> and it, 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 it touches on another issue, and that's this gap between a lot of people who do business continuity and crisis management and the C-suite. A lot of people upstairs, if they're knowledgeable about it, they often look at business continuity as something technical, something that has to be done, um, and you know that we can always use for standard things. But if it's something esoteric, uh, particularly if they feel it touches on their own interests, it's something they feel they must stand up and, in essence, protect the organization. So I think the feeling on their part is quite natural, that they feel a need to do that. The problem is, is that's not at that point the capability that you need there. What you need there is the understanding of how we can do this in a structured fashion, how we use the resources we've already prepared, the plans we've prepared to optimize performance, to minimize risk. And I have a, a, an image for you that might be interesting. Um, this is something I recently drew up um, that has to do with the crisis in Ukraine. And what it is, is an overview of some of these risks that companies are looking at. 
how business continuity managers and crisis managers are looking in different areas um, to, um, uh, to, to structure these risks. They've put them in different domains. They look at different areas, different types of risks. They have worked out uh, how that risk could manifest itself, what kind the of impacts there might be associated. For the benefit of those that are listening on Voice America, could you <clears throat> just give a couple of examples of the types of risk and the um, uh, yeah, absolutely. So when you're looking at a situation like the Ukraine right now, there's concern about cyber attacks. Okay, what does that mean? Is that to my organization? Might it be to my partners, my suppliers, the payment systems I use as a company? Physical security risks. Do I have places where demonstrations might occur, where perhaps Russians and Ukrainians are working together on the work floor overseas somewhere? Might that give tension? Um, might there be acts of sabotage if I have an operation somewhere in Russia? Um, HR risks uh, about screening for people, um, business risks regarding uh, supply chains or transport, legal and compliance risks to monitor for sanctions, uh, financial risks. Is there a possibility we can't pay our clients or pay our vendors or reach our market? Uh, reputational risk, you know, might we have somebody in who's working for us or an entity we hired uh, that's vulnerable to sanctions? And might we be accused here if we don't take action quickly to not be living up to those sanctions? So it's these kinds of lists that, of course, business continuity and crisis managers do work with and have, you know, if you will, uh, on their radar screen, but not necessarily uh, the big leader up top and doesn't know that this has already been prepared to help the company. Now, <clears throat> I want to jump to what you mentioned about the C-suite gap, because that's one of the other areas that we're going to touch on. Why is there a gap then? Because we, we've mentioned uh, what happens, but where, what causes that gap between the crisis management team and the uh, you know, C-suite uh, you know, of knowledge and, and things like that? What, what creates that gap? I think two general gaps. One has to do with the fact that risk is essentially seen as a, as a negative something, the needing to control risk. So it's not part of the mothership in terms of the leadership team. We're here for growth. We're here to capture markets. We're here to sell products. We're here to educate children. So the aspect of, of risk sometimes is not prominent for the C-suite. And on the other hand, you do need a specialist in charge of it. And if that specialist or team of specialists is not every once in a while at the top table, they may not have a lot of recognition there. They may not be known there. Their stature may be too low. And this is where I'm sort of advocating whenever I talk to business leaders is, listen, understand the value of your emergency services director, of your business continuity leader. They're actually fulfilling a very vital function. And whether it's on the IT side or physical operations, they're essentially the only people who are protecting your organization. So it's important you take them along, recognize what they're doing, and then make use of them at the right moment. And um, too often, I think a lot of business continuity leaders don't necessarily, they're not good at business speak. They don't necessarily go to business school. They don't really know how the dashboards at the higher level work. So quite often, they're also not really capable of, of voicing their position um, and their contribution in a very effective manner. 
What about training? You, we, we talk, you talked about uh, executives, you know, being trained for growth and that, you know, increase the bottom line and, you know, brand, you know, market share and all that kind of stuff. Should there be some sort of training, even if it's uh, an overview uh, during university, their university days or college days or something that gives them at least a heads up? You know, if you're going to be a, uh, a world leader, a captain of industry, you know, here's what you may encounter and here's what you should know, at least at a high level. Is Absolutely. there a gap that goes that far back? Absolutely. I think, you know, that's the foundation that we start in, in not just in business schools, but anything to do with administration or managing anything. There should be more of an element of, you know, what's the aspect of risk here and how do we then manage it and what are the mechanisms to do so, which is our field of work. And I think in too many places that's not yet there. We have seen in a number of schools from Wharton to uh, INSEAD in Paris uh, to uh, different business schools in Asia, the last number of years, uh, business continuity and crisis management come on the agenda. So it's interesting to see and it's positive to see. And COVID was a big prompter, uh, but it's still not very consistent. Uh, it's not consistently there as a topic. It's not consistently there in terms of quality modules available to business leaders. And I think in addition to the basic education level, if you will, where it needs to become a more of a, an added cornerstone, I think we also need to add it during executive education a lot more. Uh, and finally, I think if you're an effective team in business continuity and crisis management within an organization, then of course, every you know, yearly giving an update to the general management team, not just the few executives who sit on the crisis team team, but try to get the general leadership at least aware it exists, aware it's being worked on, aware what the issues are, um, that the management of risks exists, uh, and that they can benefit from them at these moments. Because every once in a while, you know, we all have problems. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is why COVID, I think, was such a wake-up call for so many, because it affected everyone, just like cyber and ransomware at the moment is affecting a large number of organizations. And of course, in the latest turn, the fallout from the Ukraine crisis. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Let's jump to another one that uh, you wrote about that I hadn't seen um, captured under crisis management before. And that's appoint a designated bias buster. Now, what were you talking about there? I'm talking about that a lot of people on teams, particularly small teams, they're from the organization. Um, if you have too many people who are either very directive people, you know, top-down leadership, uh, not very open-facing, not very inclusive of other opinions, or too many people who are the same on a team, and of course, Think about 55-year-old white guys in a lot of countries in the West or this kind of thing. Um, it's a pattern you see that um, the biases that these people have tend to become determinants in sort of how things are run. What should we focus on? What do we think will or will not happen? Uh, how, what do we think is most effective? And if you have biases in these areas and you don't call them out, you have a major danger of basically going on the wrong path of missing key risks. So Alex, um, I have a slide that I'd like to share with you uh, that deals somewhat with, uh, with the bias aspect. And um, what you see on that slide 
is um, a situation where I was helping a, a crisis team prepare for a Formula One race. And what was interesting is that a number of the people on that team had different types of biases. And one that was very strong among others was optimism bias. This is not going to happen. We don't need to spend time on this. And as a result of this, uh, they didn't spend much time on particular risks. They ended up missing out on uh, additional risks because of that, but they also ran into delays and problems preparing because other parties were interested in those risks and did see them as primary concerns, including local police and local government and safety engineers. You also find with um, biases that in the end, they often end up costing money because you find out you missed something or have to cover something that you didn't cover in the beginning. And I think one example where we're talking here about, you know, wrong path and missing out on things is perhaps what's happening worldwide. And uh, that's what's happening in Ukraine right now. We had such optimism bias, if you will, that nothing was going to happen. A lot of countries, governments, in terms of evacuation preparations, think about what we learned in Kabul and then haven't now done for Kiev, um, basically had biases that this is going to blow over, the Russians will never do this. Uh, and because of that, you know, are now facing problems of being behind the curve and not having worked out particular scenarios, including what's the implication of certain sanctions. So bias is a, is a dangerous thing on the team. You need to have some open thought, open thinking. And if you can't have that on a team, then you got to make sure you have a level of control by putting that bias buster on there. How, how do you prevent it? Because it, it, to use your example, you know, a bunch of 55-year-old white men <laughs> sitting, you know, in, in a room, how do you prevent that, you know, you don't end up with a bunch of people just will be fine, you know, how do you encourage people to speak up? Think, uh, you know, I hate the term, but think outside the box. You know, how, how do you encourage that? I think you encourage it by ensuring that you are very careful in the selection and setup of your team, that you look for the personalities that, however capable and directive and full of leadership they may be, are also open to other opinions, are open to expertise and outside voices, um, that there are people who are able to reflect on things as opposed to just uh, in, in sort of a Sturm und Drang directive manner, say, you know, we have to go and take a left turn on this. Think about those options, work through those options, get that expert and alternative opinion from other people on the team, uh, and that there's room for that. And if you fear you don't have that, then ensure you have that stick behind the door here where uh, somebody is really tasked with calling out, well, you know, Fred or Susan, wouldn't you rather contemplate, you know, there is an alternative here, or have we really thought through these risks enough? And that that's somebody powerful enough to bring that message at the table. Okay. So the last thing um, that uh, I wanted to touch on is uh, you talk about uh, ecosystems. And what, what were you on about there? I'm sorry, when you talk about ecosystems? Yes, ecosystems. And the um, you're going to have to elaborate to me what you mean by that. I didn't use the term echo, I think. Oh, oh so, sorry. I, I'm, um, during our break, oh, we used that. I'm sorry. So. Ecosystems in terms of, right. Um, I think it's important as an organization that you try to 
uh, understand you're part of a larger context. And when a crisis happens in whatever field, you're probably not going to be the only one. You may be the only one suffering the crisis, but you need to uh, communicate and, and have connectivity with other parties to help you, whether it's your clients or whether it's the authorities. So you're always part of some form of ecosystem. Um, and that's particularly true, for instance, for disasters. You're never alone in a disaster. Other organizations are suffering as well. And I think it's important that you as an organization figure out what are the areas where it's likely for me to occur uh, and then to make sure you have some level of connectivity with other stakeholders in that environment to help you prepare. Uh, lots of different ways for doing that. Um, you can also originate your, your own efforts to build that ecosystem, but definitely to be plugged in. And I think, therefore, it's very important, for instance, for business continuity managers and crisis managers to have access to networks of other experts uh, or their counterparts and organizations you work with. Train together, think together, develop knowledge together, but make sure that you can plug into that network to the fullest extent. Well, we've down to uh, about four minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, anything that maybe you want to touch on in your book or any final thoughts on crisis management overall? Well, um, I think one of the things I found very useful in peacetime is to actually take your time as a, as a crisis team together with some additional members from general management to walk and talk through issues. Too often, it's once a year we do an exercise. Um, you know, the expertise comes at the table with the top management. We go through something. And I think just kicking back, um, having a full afternoon or an evening, maybe with a dinner built around it, to talk through different issues. How do we look at risk uh, as an organization? How do we organize things? Are we comfortable with how we're doing it? Does management have faith and trust in what's being done here to help them? Uh, but also for the business continuity managers to ask those questions upwards. Are we serving you right do you think we are being the most effective we can be? Do you have concerns? Quite often in leadership, people are a little bit isolated. Um, they're often also insecure top leaders. And I think uh, in a humane way, if you will, approaching them with what concerns do you have? You know, what things do you think we're, we're not capable in? Do you have anything that sort of worries you late at night that we want to make sure we're prepared for to serve you properly? And doing that in a, in a sort of comfortable context with having the time to discuss and talk through those things, I think is very important to at least have that on the agenda once a year, as opposed to just the training and just the hard run through of a risk list. You got me thinking, is it because maybe sometimes we assume leaders know what's going on simply because of their position? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a very profound point. Uh, there's assumptions in all directions, just as there are biases in all directions. And the point of, you know, you shouldn't assume, I think it works both ways. The top people shouldn't assume that everything is covered and all their needs are going to be instantaneously met. But in reverse, I think the people who are the professionals on the workforce in business continuity and crisis management shouldn't assume that everybody up there understands what they're doing, how they're doing it, and what they're capable of delivering. Absolutely. It's interesting because, you know, everybody works under some sort of an assumption. 
And I, I, I listening to you there, I thought, you know, I think simply because someone's the CEO, the reason they got there is because they know everything. Yeah. And that seems to be the perception of someone as they move up the ladder, that they, they know more and more and more information. Well, that's not necessarily, you know, sure, they may know a lot of information, but they may not know everything about everything. Right. Or such a simple assumption as, you know, I have a trustworthy person who supports me with the board, who has the president's ear, and I'm sure that they're telling him all about the great things we can do for him. But then the reality is that person's on vacation or has just been fired or has just been relocated. So you have to always check, 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 check to make sure and do your homework that those assumptions are not getting in the way of effective performance. And on that note, we've come to the end of the show. Glenn, thank you very much for sharing your expertise and time. And congratulations once again on the book, Code Black. Um, you can get it from uh, you know, online uh, vendors or even bookstores. Um, I do recommend it. There are some different chapters in here that uh, others have not written about. And we've touched on a couple of them here. So, Alex, only, only available online, I'm afraid. Only on online? Oh. Well, I got it. So I'm... I'm happy with it. Uh, I'm glad I came across it on LinkedIn, you know, and, and I'm glad I was able to uh, have you come on the show and talk about it today. So congratulations once again. Thank you. And thank you very much. And to everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.